0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew 15, first 20-something verses or so. We're going to talk about the parable of the unwashed hands and how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. We'll start with verse 1 in chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem to Jesus and asked where did they come from. They were going from Jerusalem up to Capernaum where Jesus was carrying on his Galilean ministry. Why did they come there? Because this was right after the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. And Jesus had not gone down to the Passover feast, which happened right after that feeding of the 5,000. And the reason he probably didn't go down there is because he didn't want to get arrested this early in his ministry. So the scribes and Pharisees were probably waiting for him down there in Jerusalem. When he didn't show up, they went up to check him out in Galilee. Now, Pharisees and scribes came. I have often wondered, what is the difference between these two? They're mentioned together so often, but are they the same group of people? No, they're not. They're like two Venn diagrams that have a large oversection, o- o- intersection in the middle, but they are different. A scribe, which the NIV translate as a, translates as a teacher of the law, A scribe is a professional group. The Pharisees were a religious group. Now, many Pharisees were scribes, and many scribes were Pharisees, but not all scribes were Pharisees, and not all Pharisees were scribes. To give you an oral rendition of that Venn diagram, the scribes did professional duties. They copied scriptures. They numbered and enrolled troops. They took care of temple finances. They They counted, donated money. They paid temple workers. They served as secretaries. They would take dictation for those who were writing letters. They would write out legal decrees. Later on in their history, they became lawyers and judges. Now, the Pharisees, as I said, were a religious group. Their main emphasis was separation from the Gentiles. In fact, the word Pharisee probably means, or some people think it means, to be separate or separate. And they taught what the oral tradition of the Jews were, and they were basically rabbis. They were religious teachers, not necessarily professional people. Now, some Pharisees became scribes, and some scribes were Pharisees, as I said. Now, when did the Pharisees get started? Well, nobody knows exactly for sure when. They existed in the first century AD, of course, because that's when Jesus was. Josephus indicates that somewhere in the latter half of the second century BC, which is in the 100s, the Pharisees had already been formed into an influential body. And in fact, Josephus says the influence was so great that if they spoke Against a king or a high priest, they immediately gained credence with the masses. So they were not people to be ignored. Jesus' fame had already reached from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So his enemies came up there to check him out. And the reason his fame had spread so widely, of course, was his teaching, not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but his teaching with great authority, plus all the healing and miracles he was doing. Now, let's go to Matthew 15. Uh, let Let's First of all, let's look at some parallel passages here in John, assuming that this is a parallel passage. The synoptic problem and the connection with John is, is something that's controversial and difficult. But assuming that J- Jameson Fawcett and Brown is right, this was at a time in, which is mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover Jewish festival was near. That's the fast, Passover that Jesus missed. He did not keep that over at Jerusalem for fear of the Jews, he stayed up there in Galilee. John 7, 1 says this, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. So assuming we can match John 6 and 7 up with where we are in Matthew 15, that shows us why Jesus did not go down to Jerusalem and why the scribes came up to Galilee. They came up and in verse 2 in chapter 15 of Matthew, they say that this, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Horrible sin. They don't wash their hands. sound like my mother when I was a kid. Wash your hands before you eat. It's a little bit more serious than that, though. So We have a new group here, by the way, to talk. We've already talked about scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees why, say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, who were the elders? Well, they were political leaders, all right? The, the scribes were professional groups. They could be hired to write letters and so forth, or they would take down laws and transcribed scriptures and that kind of thing. But the elders were political leaders, and that means they could have been community elders like city council people ahead of a, a village. They could have been uh, in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem or in a local Sanhedrin in a village somewhere somewhere. And we also, not in this verse, but in other verses, they, uh, other leaders are mentioned, uh, synagogue ru- rulers are mentioned, which were probably be head of the synagogues. So we've got all these different groups. But elders are probably city, local, village officials, I would say, most probably. Now. Let me read you a quote I got from www.uscatholic.org. This is a Catholic website. The elders acted as community leaders and judges. The chief priests were members of the high priestly families of those acting with the authority of the high priest. That's another group. The chief priest, the priest. While the scribes with whom Jesus argued were probably lawyers and judges. While the scribes interpreted Jewish law, they did not make it. Hence their conflicts with Jesus who claimed authority over the law. So we put all these groups together. Let's review them real quick. We got the scribes, a professional group who were acting like notaries. They wrote down anything that needed to be written down, scriptures, laws. Then you got political leaders. Uh, they ran the, the villages. Then you got the, poli- the religious leaders, the scribes, excuse me, the Pharisees. And they, of course, would, uh, were the interpreters of uh, they, they were the ones who made the jewish law basically the oral tradition not moses but the oral tradition then you got the chief priest and the priest they were the ones who maintained the levitical system of sacrifice in the temple you got all these different groups in jewish society now when it says the elder some people say it's not elders of of villages or, or of uh, cities but it's actually referring to elder Pharisees, the schools of Hillel and Shammai, the two famous schools of the Pharisees. John Gill believes that. Uh, I don't really think so. I don't know why, but I don't think so. Some people say it's the elders of the present Sanhedrin, the one, the, the big Sanhedrin in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. That would make them more in line with being political leaders, which is, I think they were. But anyway, the tradition of the elders, the elders either, did they make the tradition or did they just keep it? Probably just passed it on I would imagine the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who made made that tradition. We're going to look at where this tradition came from, by the way, what was the tradition of the elders? Now, according to the, my NIV study Bible, the, this oral tradition started after the Babylonian captivity, which, of course, began about 587 and 586 B.C., when the rabbis there in exile in Babylonia started making meticulous rules and regulations governing daily life. How far you can throw an apricot pit without it being work. Can you rub grain together with your fingers? That's work. Can't do that on Sunday, Sunday on Saturday, but if you rub the grain together with the palms of your hand, you can do it because that's not work. And how many miles or how many stadia can you walk away from Jerusalem on Saturday without it being work And All this nonsense. So they would make interpretations and applications of the law of Moses, these people, these rabbis in Babylonia, and then they would hand it down those traditions from generation to generation. Now, in Jesus' days, those traditions were in oral form, and they were put in writing in the Mishnah, which is something that If you're going to understand Jewish background of the scriptures, you need to understand the Mishnah. That was the writing of the oral tradition. It was oral until it got written down in the Mishnah about 200 A.D. after the time of Jesus. Now, I'm going to read you a long quote here from Adam Clark about this oral tradition. I'm going to point out here that John Gill said that the Jews didn't even pretend that the traditions came from Moses. They openly said the authority came from the scribes. That's what John Gill says. But then Adam Clark traces the tradition coming all the way down from Moses all the way to the mission. Now, I don't know who's right, but I will read you this quote from Clark to show you how important the Jews felt that this oral tradition was. Quote, The Jews feign that, they pretend that, when God gave Moses the written law, he gave him also the oral law, which is the interpretation of the former. This law Moses at first delivered to Aaron, then to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, and then after these to the 72 elders, who were six of the most eminent men chosen out of each of the 12 tribes. These 72, with Moses and Aaron, delivered again to all the heads of the people, that's the cl- heads of the clans and the tribes, and afterwards to the congregation at large. So we're spread now all the way through the whole tribe of Israel through their family leaders and their clan leaders. They say also that before Moses died, he delivered this oral law or system of traditions to Joshua. And Joshua then delivered to the elders which succeeded him, they to the prophets and the prophets to each other, till it came to Jeremiah who delivered it to Baruch his scribe, who repeated it to Ezra, who delivered it to the men of the great synagogue, the last of whom was Simon the Just. By Simon the Just it was delivered to Antigonus of Socho, by him to Jose the son of Johanan. By him to Jose, that's really not Jose, that's kind of Spanish, <laughs> to Jose, the son of Joeser. By him to Nathan, the Arbalite, and Joshua, the son of Perakiah. And by them to Judah, the son of Tabai, and Simeon, the son of Shatai. And by them to Shemiah, and Abtalion. And by them to Hillel, ah, the famous Hillel at the time of the famous Hillel school at the time of Jesus, and by the hell to Simeon, his son, the same who took Christ in his arms when brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord, the Simeon that's in the book of Acts. By Simeon, it was delivered to Gamaliel, his son, and the Gamaliel, of course, was the teacher of Paul. He's also in Acts, the preceptor of St. Paul. He delivered it to Simeon, his son, and he to Rabbi Judah, Hakadesh, his son, who compiled and digested it into the book, which is called the Mishnah. So there we go, all the way from the Mishnah, 200 A.D. from Moses about 1450 or so B.C. So there's a, a at least a claim that the oral tradition lasted for a long, long time. Of course, this is all hogwash. It, it was started in Babylonia. It had nothing to do with Moses. And as Jesus is getting ready to point out, it put the people under bondage, and it canceled out and contradicted the law of Moses. So here's the first example of that. Jesus said, are the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus up there in Capernaum, they don't wash their hands when they eat, referring to the disciples. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands. So this is one of the tradition of the elders. you got to wash your hands in a certain way before you eat food, otherwise you're unclean. Now, you say, what's the big deal? You've got to put your, uh, yourself into the shoes of a Pharisee. They consider not washing your hands a horrible, flagitious crime. I like that word, flagitious. It just means horribly criminal. A horrible, flagitious crime. Let me give you some quotes. Here's John Gill quoting a rabbi. Whoever eats bread without washing of hands is as if he lay with a whore. Can you imagine your wife coming to you and She says, I can put up with you sleeping with a whore, but by golly, you better wash your hands before dinner. Then he quotes, Gill quotes Rabbi Eliezer, whoever despiseth washing of hands shall be rooted out of the world. You don't wash your hands before dinner, you need to die. And here's another good one. This is from John Gill and Adam Clark, both at the, who say that there was a sort of evil spirit, a boogeyman named Shibtah would sit on the unwashed hands and on the food of people who were eating with unwashed hands. And Shibta would leave something very dangerous behind. I don't know, maybe Shiptai pooped, I don't know, but left something behind on the food. And this food would hurt the body when the food was eaten. So Jesus' enemies probably, when they said, Why are you not washing your hands? Why do your disciples not wash their hands? They wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill these disciples because they didn't, for the horrible crime of not washing their hands before meals. How did Jesus answer them? Matthew 15 verse three. He answered them, "And why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? Now you notice he didn't really deny the factual accusation that his disciples weren't washing the hands. Apparently they weren't. They didn't care about the tradition of the elders. So Jesus didn't try to defend them on factual grounds. He did basically a socioy-old lady arguments, a too quick way. He said, hey, you guys, we're breaking the traditions of the elders, but you guys are breaking Moses. You're breaking God's commandment, which, of course, is Moses. And, of course, he's contrasting God's commandments according to man's commandments, because these man-made rules were made up. This oral tradition was made up by the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 15, verse 4. Jesus now gives an example of how the scribes and Pharisees were doing this, how they were annulling and canceling the law of God, the law of Moses by their man-made traditions Jesus says this in verse 4 for God said honor your father and your mother and the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death now this is straight out quoting from scriptures here's the ten Commandments Exodus 2012 that's the sixth commandment I believe depending on how you number the ten commandments honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you very famous verse and then in the second, reading of the law, Deuteronomy 5, 16. Honor your father and the, your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and so, so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God has given you. So that's straight out scripture. So Jesus quoted the scripture to them and then he quoted some more scripture to him. He says, the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Here he was quoting from Exodus 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother must be put to death. Leviticus 29. If 20 verse 9. If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood is on his own hands. Pretty strict law. Had to be strict. A couple million people wandering through the desert. You start having family dissension and rebellion and chaos and anarchy. The whole enterprise would have collapsed. So they had, the law of Moses had to be strict. But Jesus quotes that law to show how much honor A father and mother should get. And of course, honor meant among the Jews, it meant more than just respect and submission. It meant to support and nourish your father and mother. And now he's going to quote the tradition that violates that, that abrogates that effectively, abrogates that law, Matthew chapter 15, verses five through six. But you say, you scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, but you scribes and Pharisees say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple or as the parallel in Mark says, korban, which is the Hebrew word that meant a gift committed to the temple. Whatever benefit you might have received from me, these Pharisees are telling their fathers and mothers, anything I could have given you, I've already given it to the temple. And Jesus goes on, verse 7, quoting the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees say that he does not have to honor his father. If he's made that gift to the temple, he doesn't have to give it to his father. And some manuscripts say to your father or your mother. You don't have to honor your parents. You don't have to support your parents if you... Make a gift to the temple, pay the temple workers to pay or to pay the temple workers or to do charity with it or whatever, whatever the temple or to repair the temple. However, the temple use the money. The temple got the money. Your parents did not. Jesus continues in this way. You have revoked God's word because of your tradition. John Gill points out that uh, once uh, you made a gift Korban, that Korban gift could not be revoked or converted to any other use. And all you had to do was say Korban, and the gift was untouchable. Nobody can use it. This was a tradition of the elders. It was not in the Old Testament law. And it was such a harsh tradition that Jewish rabbis were open to a dissolution of the vow in order to help the parents. So even the rabbis realized this thing was, was not good for parents. Some people say that uh, actually the rabbis opened the vow of Korban up to a dissolution so that parents could be helped because of Jesus' criticism here. They realized it was just and they had to fix the system. I don't know if that's true or not, but at any rate, you could get a dissolution, but it was difficult to do. So basically what Jesus is saying is you guys are taking your money, giving it to the temple, not taking care of your parents. You're, vo- you're following the oral tradition in order to do to do that, and you're leaving your parents in the lurch. And of course the Pharisees had absolutely no answer to them to Jesus. Matthew fifteen, chapters verses seven through nine. Hypocrites, Jesus continues. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's the classic definition of a hypocrite. Somebody who says something with their lips but means something else on the inside. They, these Pharisees, worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. This is quoting Isaiah. And so the me there is talking about God the Father. The people worship God the Father, worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines the commands of men or the traditions of men. The commands of men are man-made traditions. So you want to be a hypocrite? You want to pretend that you are worshiping God? Just listen to all the legalistic rules that your religious system tells you that you're supposed to do in order to be a good Christian. You got to not work on Sunday. You got to not drink coffee if you're in Germany. And I drink beer if you're in certain parts of America. Now, of course, that's changed now with millennial Christianity. Now, it's if you don't drink beer, something wrong with you. All these rules that people make don't play cards. You can't play. I remember missionaries used to play Rook. They could play Rook, but they couldn't play any other game with the cards, even though the game is perfectly innocent, like Crazy Eights, because people have used cards to play poker. And poker is gambling, and that's a sin. Or at least it's allegedly to be a sin. I believe it is a sin, actually. But it's a tough one because it's not in the Bible. And then how about this? Can't play pool. There's absolutely nothing wrong with pool. It's a game. But pool is associated with pool halls, with a bunch of sleazy women and drunken men walking around. So this association is bad, so we, we make a rule about it. Well, that's what you do. You come up with all these crazy commands about how far you can throw an apricot pit. And then you say that's a doctrine. When it's really just a command of man, it's just a tradition of men, and then you say it's a doctrine, a doctrine means a teaching of God, and that turns you into a hypocrite, because you can keep all those commands of men, and it makes you look real pious, but in your heart, you don't care about God. You just care about keeping those rules, and in fact, a legalistic type person really doesn't care about God. He cares about those rules more than he cares about God. I remember one time I was a Christian school principal, and we had a rule for the kids not to smoke, obviously. And one day man we started smelling smoke in the bathroom. My gosh, there was so much smoke. I said, Somebody is one of my students around here is smoking. And I was really suspicious and I was looking around and we had this old Pentecostal holiness lady and I know all Pentecostal Holiness people aren't legalists, but ninety nine point nine percent of them are. I hate to say it, at least the old ones were and she was old. She had this little bun on top of her head and she was right there looking for those smokers. We're gonna find we're gonna stop this smoking, by golly. Come to find out it was her that was doing the smoking. It wasn't the students. (laughs) Hypocrites. She's around there pointing her finger at the students when she was the one smoking herself. The rabbis themselves recognized that they were hypocrites. Here's a good quote from John Gill quoting a rabbi Nathan. Quote, if the hypocrites of the world were divided into ten parts, nine of them would belong to Jerusalem and one to the rest of the world. (laughs) Jerusalem was full of hypocrite hypocritical rabbis. Here's a quote from Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen. The problem was in the Old Testament as well as the New. Isaiah says this, the Lord said, because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. That's religious Phariseeism, religious legalism, empty ritualism, and the Christian world is full of this nonsense, and I don't know how in the world anybody, in fact, that's why I'm a Calvinist today, because if I had to be a rational person and say that somebody's going to come to Jesus based upon the quality of the witness given to them, I don't know why anybody would come to the Lord when I see all this religious hypocrisy around, especially when in in these state church countries in Europe and these liberal Protestant churches where they're just so full of garbage, but they claim to be Christian, they claim to honor God. No, they're hypocrites. They don't really believe in God. They pretend to believe in God. These commands of men that were taught—Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown describe this way—the driveling nature of their multitudinous observances, with perfect description of the traditions of men and the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Matthew 5, or the commands of men, as Matthew puts it. Matthew 15 verses 10 through 11, summoning the crowd, Jesus continues, Jesus told them, listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Now the disciples consider this a parable, to me it's pretty obvious what it means, what goes in the mouth that defiles a man, Jesus is saying, look, you got dirty hands and you wash your food, that does not make you unclean. That dirty food that you put in your mouth is what comes out of your mouth because that's what you're speaking, and that comes from your heart. That's what makes you dirty. That's what makes you spiritually dirty, spiritually defiled. You're not going to be defiled because you didn't wash your hands. And remember now, Levitically unclean meant you violated the Mosaic law. That would make you ritually unclean. But this is violating a tradition of the Pharisees. That doesn't make anybody unclean because that has nothing to do with Moses. It was man-made. Now, notice that Jesus here is summoning the crowd. He's not just talking to the Pharisees anymore. They probably, the crowd probably overheard the discussion. And he turned around and looked at the whole crowd and said, I'm going to tell you all, not just these Pharisees, I'm going to tell you all. And he directly challenged the Pharisees publicly and says, what they're talking about is BS. It doesn't, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. So don't listen to these people. No wonder the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. Jesus figured it was not worth his time to deal with such stubborn and obstinate people. So he just turned away from them and started teaching the crowd. Here's a rabbinic quote reflecting the rabbinic attitude toward defiled meat. Quote, forbidden meats are unclean themselves and defile both body and soul. In other words, you eat something with unwashed hands. You're not only making your body dirty and defiled, you're making your soul defiled. Now, let me make a a, a comment here, a matter of opinion here. There are some people who don't eat the things that are in Moses' law, not, not the Pharisees' traditions, but in Moses' law. They don't eat those things for dietary purposes to make them healthy, and I'm sure it does make people healthy, make them lose weight and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't turn that prohibition into something religious, as long as it is a diet. It is not, I'm doing this because God's going to love me more and I'm trying to obey God. You're not obeying God, you're going on a diet. There's a big difference. Now let's go to verse 12. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard this statement? Duh, no kidding. Now, is that surprising? The Pharisees would be upset when Jesus just publicly rebuked them. He didn't answer their questions about why his disciples were not washing their hands. He didn't even bother to defend himself. In fact, that was just like saying, They're going to keep on not washing their hands. I don't care what you say about them not washing their hands. And by the way, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're breaking, he called them hypocrites, use the word, hypocrites, and by the way, you're breaking the law of Moses. Ooh, and to tell a Pharisee he was a lawbreaker? Oh my gosh, there's nothing worse. No wonder they took offense. It's funny, the disciples came up, do you know? Well, of course he knew. But I guess the disciples were a little bit uh, worried. Here's some optional thoughts that might have been going through their mind. They could have been afraid that the Pharisees were going to nail him put them in jail, haul them up before the Sanhedrin. They could have been saying, Jesus, we need to be careful here. The Pharisees are upset by what you're saying. We need to make escape plans if necessary. Or they might have actually, according to John Gill, been concerned that they had lost the chance to win them over to the gospel. I, I doubt that. I don't think they they were that charitable toward the Pharisees. I mean, did Jesus ever worry about losing his chance to win the Pharisees over to the gospel? He called them hypocrites. Well, that's a great witnessing technique, isn't it? You hypocrites. Gosh, I wish we had people like that today. Somebody come visit Andy Stanley's church and talk like that. See what kind of uh, evangelistic results might occur. Matthew 15, 13. He, Jesus replied, Every plant that my Heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. This is easy too. He's referring to the Pharisees. He's saying, "My God, didn't plant them into Jewish soil and they're going to be uprooted, which they were in AD 70. The Romans came and wiped them out. So if the disciples were afraid or if they were trying to be prudent to avoid capture, or if they were worried about not converting them, it didn't matter. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. My heavenly father didn't plan them. They're going to be uprooted. So you don't need to worry about witnessing to them, and you don't need to worry about what they're going to do to you. Now, notice that this verse could be misused. Some people could say, well, there's no point in opposing people who are opposed to God because God's going to uproot them eventually, so we'll just let them run amok all over us. No, we should contend for the faith. We should fight those who are opposed to the faith. After all, Jesus continued to fight the Pharisees until he died. He exposed them very courageously, very bravely in a way which he knew would eventually get him killed. I mean, what he did he look at when he went to Nazareth? The crowd loved him when he first got there. By the time he finished teaching in the synagogue, they took him out to a cliff to throw him off to kill him. He he turned a perfectly friendly crowd into a hostile crowd because he was not afraid of confronting them with the truth. I wish Andy Stanley would think about that a little bit, or Joel Osteen. But this is rather an encouragement, not a discouragement, to talk to speak truth to our enemies, our spiritual enemies. No matter how entrenched the opposition is, Jesus is eventually going to root it out. So just keep on talking and don't worry about when it looks like you're going you're going to be thrown in jail or the culture's ignoring you or The church is not growing, or the church is split, and all this bad stuff that can discourage Christians real fast. This should encourage us. There's nothing that God didn't plant that's not going to be uprooted, and that includes LGBT activists, that includes liberal Protestants, that includes atheists, that includes Islamists, that includes all who have raised their fist up against the revelation of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. They're going to be rooted up, and there's no sense in worrying about it. It will happen. Matthew fifteen verse fourteen, Jesus says concerning the scribes and Pharisees, "Leave them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit." You want to follow the Pharisees? You're going to fall into a pit along with the Pharisees. Notice that Jesus is saying, "Yes, these Pharisees are going to fall into a pit." So don't follow them, because if you do, you're going to follow them into a pit too. And and besides, how stupid it is to follow a blind guide. Nobody does that. And the Pharisees are blind. They're spiritually blind. Don't follow them. Leave them alone. There's no use in casting your pearls before swine, Jesus said in another metaphor, in another place in his ministry. But here he says basically the same thing. Leave them alone. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to talk to them. They're hard-hearted. They've proved they're hard-hearted. Just leave them alone now. You can't force somebody to believe in Christ. I don't care how holy you are, and I don't care how well-reasoned your arguments are. You can't force people to believe in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean to ignore them in some Adam Clark points out that some people have misused these words and say, well, we're just supposed to leave them alone. We're not supposed to talk about them. Let me read you the quote from Adam Clark. These words have been sadly misunderstood. Some have quoted them to prove that blind and deceitful teachers should not be pointed out to the people, nor the people warned against them, and that men should abide in the communion of a corrupt church. In other words, leave them alone, let them be heretics. Leave them alone, let them be blind guides. Leave them alone and let them lead people into a pit. No, that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that. People who know the truth are supposed to ignore those who are trashing the truth. What he means is don't follow those who are trashing the truth. Leave them alone in the sense of don't follow them. But by golly, it doesn't mean leave them, leave them alone in the sense of not pointing them out to the sheep. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15, verses 15 through 16. Then Peter replied to him, explain this parable to us, the parable of of uh, unclean, of not washing your hands, and, and what goes into the mouth does not defile you, but what comes out does. Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, we read in the parallel passage. The rest of the disciples asked, and Peter asked, probably representing the disciples, explain this to us. Now this is how Jesus answers Peter: Are even you still lacking in understanding? Even you, in other words, he he knew the Pharisees would be lacking in understanding, but he's saying, Peter. Are you too, like the Pharisees, dull, as the NIV puts it? Are you dull in understanding? You don't understand what I said? And this, to me, I understand that because Peter should have figured that out. I don't see why that's so difficult to understand. Unless he was so used to the Pharisaical traditions that it, it didn't occur to him that what you put in your mouth doesn't defile you. He might have been thinking, of course it defiles you. You remember he had to have a big, a nice, fancy dream about all those unclean animals coming on him before he, and and, and 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 I think it was an angel in the vision that says, eat these unclean animals to prepare Peter for go, going to talk to those unclean Gentiles who ate unclean food and didn't wash their hands. So maybe that's why Peter had a hard time understanding he was still too immersed in the traditions of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus is pretty rough on his disciples when they show lack of faith or understanding, as I've pointed out in previous audios. Like, for example, when they were Peter got, this <laughs> the same Peter when he was getting out of the boat and he started sinking when he saw the waves. And Jesus says, what's wrong with you, you of little faith? Just because you're standing out here in the middle of the sea and the rain storm is raging and the wind is blowing and you're sinking, what's your problem? You need to believe in me. Well, a trainer is tough on his trainees, especially when they're facing death like the disciples were soon to be facing. So Jesus needed to be tough with these guys. And he wasn't worried about running them off. They wanted to stay with him. They loved him. And they, if they, were, they wanted to be trained by him. But at any rate, Jesus is not going to hide the, the explanation to Peter. He would already said in two chapters previous in Matthew 13:11, he answered them because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. The Pharisees aren't going to know, but by golly, my disciples are. Matthew 15:17 through 20, Jesus explains the parable. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Or as the literal Greek says, according to Adam Clark, thrown into the privy? Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is thrown into the privy. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Now that's obvious, and obvious interpretation as I've already given to you. As to what it means, let's look at some of these words here. Adulteries means sexual sins with married people. The next phrase after the the next uh, word in the series of commas here, sexual immoralities. that means sexual immorality with single people. Both kinds of sexual immoralities with married to single people would include things like heterosexual sex with somebody not your wife, uh, homosexuality, bestiality. They didn't have pornography back then, but it would include that. Incest, that kind of thing. False testimonies could refer to perjury in court with nothing more serious than that. That's bad business when you pervert justice with perjury. And I would even apply that to just lying outside of court when you're not under oath. Blasphemies, evil faults and murders is obvious. All this bad, nasty stuff comes out of your mouth because what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. Jesus is not interested in whether you wash your hands. He's washed, whether your hands are clean. He's worried about whether your heart is clean. All these bad stuff that comes out of a heart, that is simpatico with psalms 5 9 for there's nothing reliable in what they say destruction is within them their throat is an open grave they flatter with their tongues that of course is quoted by paul in romans 3 9 and which all good calvinists are constantly quoting and saying look we are totally depraved matthew that's it that's it for matthew 15 verses 1 through 20 the parable of the unwashed hand i hope you enjoyed it